America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Book 2, Chapter 9 of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book 2, Riches. Chapter 9, Appearance and Disappearance. Arthur, my dear boy, said Mr. Meagles on the evening of the following day, Mother and I have been talking this over, and we don't feel comfortable in remaining as we are. That elegant connection of ours, that dear lady who was here yesterday, I understand, said Arthur. Even that affable and condescending ornament of society, pursued Mr. Meagles, may misrepresent us, we are afraid. We could bear a great deal, Arthur, for her sake, but we think we would rather not bear that, if it is all the same to her. Good, said Arthur. Go on. You see, proceeded Mr. Meagles, it might put us wrong with our son-in-law, it might even put us wrong with our daughter, and it might lead to a great deal of domestic trouble. You see, don't you? Yes, indeed, returned Arthur. There is much reason in what you say. He had glanced at Mrs. Meagles, who was always on the good and sensible side, and a petition had shone out of her honest face that he would support Mr. Meagles in his present inclinings. So we are very disposed, our mother and I, said Mr. Meagles, to pack up bags and baggage and go among the Alongers and Marshongers once more. I mean we are very much disposed to be off strike right through France into Italy, and see our pet. "'And I don't think,' replied Arthur, touched by the motherly anticipation in the bright face of Mrs. Meagles. She must have been very like her daughter once. "'That you could do better. And if you ask me for my advice, it is that you set off to-morrow.' "'Is it really, though?' said Mr. Meagles. "'Mother, this is being backed in an idea.' Mother, with a look which thanked Clennam in a manner very agreeable to him, answered that it was indeed. "'The fact is, besides, Arthur,' said Mr. Meagles, the old cloud coming over his face, "'that my son-in-law is already in debt again, and that I suppose I must clear him again. It may be as well, even on this account, that I should step over there and look him up in a friendly way.' Then again, here's mother foolishly anxious, and yet naturally too, about Pet's state of health, and that she should not be left to feel lonesome at the present time. It's undeniably a long way off, Arthur, and a strange place for the poor love, under all the circumstances. Let her be as well cared for as any lady in that land. Still it is a long way off. Just as home is home— though it's never so homely. Why, you see,' said Mr. Meagles, adding a new version to the proverb, 
Rome is Rome, though it's never so Romely. All perfectly true, observed Arthur, and all sufficient reasons for going. I am glad you think so. It decides me. Mother, my dear, you may get ready. We have lost our pleasant interpreter. She spoke three foreign languages beautifully, Arthur. You have heard her many a time. And you must pull me through it, mother, as well as you can. I require a deal of pulling through, Arthur, said Mr. Meagles, shaking his head. A deal of pulling through. I stick at everything, beyond a noun substantive, and I stick at him, if he's at all a tight one. Now I think of it, returned Clennam, there's Cavalletto. He shall go with you, if you like. I could not afford to lose him, but you will bring him safe back. Well, I am much obliged to you, my boy, said Mr. Meagles, turning it over, but I think not. No, I think I'll be pulled through by mother. Cavaluro, uh, I stick at his very name to start with, and it sounds like the chorus to a comic song, is so necessary to you that I don't like the thought of taking him away. More than that, there's no saying when we may come home again, and it would never do to take him away for an indefinite time. The cottage is not what it was. It only holds two little people less than it ever did, Pet and her poor unfortunate maid Tattycoram, but it seems empty now. Once out of it, there's no knowing when we may come back to it. No, Arthur, I'll be pulled through by mother. They would do best by themselves, perhaps, after all, Clennam thought. Therefore he did not press his proposal. "'If you would come down and stay here for a change, when it wouldn't trouble you,' Mr. Meagles resumed, "'I should be glad to think, and so would Mother too, I know, that you were brightening up the old place with a bit of life it was used to when it was full, and that the babies on the wall there had a kind eye upon them sometimes. You so belong to the spot, and to them, Arthur, and we should every one of us have been so happy if it had fallen out. But let us see. How's the weather for travelling now?' Mr. Meagles broke off, cleared his throat, and got up to look out of the window. They agreed that the weather was of high promise, and Clennam kept the talk in that safe direction until it had become easy again, when he gently diverted it to Henry Gowan and his quick sense and agreeable qualities when he was delicately dealt with. He likewise dwelt on the indisputable affection he entertained for his wife. Clennam did not fail of his effect upon good Mr. Meagles, whom these commendations greatly cheered, and who took mother to witness that the single and cordial desire of his heart, in reference to their daughter's husband, was harmoniously to exchange friendship for friendship, and confidence for confidence. Within a few hours the cottage furniture began to be wrapped up for preservation in the family absence, or, as Mr. Meagles expressed it, the house began to put its hair in papers, and within a few days father and mother were gone. Mrs. Ticket and Dr. Buchan were posted, as of yore, behind the parlour blind, and Arthur's solitary feet were rustling among the dry fallen leaves in the garden walks. As he had a liking for the spot, he seldom let a week pass without paying a visit. Sometimes he went down alone from Saturday to Monday, sometimes his partner accompanied him. Sometimes he merely strode for an hour or two about the house and garden, saw that all was right, and returned to London again. 
At all times, and under all circumstances, Mrs. Ticket, with her dark row of curls, and Dr. Buchan, sat in the parlour-window, looking out for the family return. On one of these visits, Mrs. Ticket received him with the words, "'I have something to tell you, Mr. Clennam, that will surprise you.' So surprising was the something in question, that it actually brought Mrs. Ticket out of the parlour-window, and produced her in the garden-walk, when Clennam went in at the gate, on its being opened for him. "'What is it, Mrs. Ticket?' said he. "'Sir,' returned that faithful housekeeper, having taken him into the parlour and closed the door, "'If ever I saw the led-away and deluded child in my life, I saw her identically in the dusk of yesterday evening.' "'You don't mean, Tatty, Coram, yes, I do,' quoth Mrs. Ticket, clearing the disclosure at a leap. "'Where?' "'Mr. Clennam,' returned Mrs. Ticket, "'I was a little heavy in my eyes, being that I was waiting longer than customary for my cup of tea, which was then preparing by Mary Jane. I was not sleeping, nor what a person would term correctly dozing. I was more what a person would strictly call watching, with my eyes closed.' Without entering upon an inquiry into this curious, abnormal condition, Clennam said, "'Exactly. Well?' "'Well, sir,' proceeded Mrs. Ticket, "'I was thinking of one thing and thinking of another, just as you yourself might, just as anybody might.' "'Precisely so,' said Clennam. "'Well?' "'And when I do think of one thing, and do think of another,' pursued Mrs. Ticket, "'I hardly need to tell you, Mr. Clennam, that I think of the family, because, dear me—' a person's thoughts. Mrs. Ticket said this with an argumentative and philosophic air. However they may stray, will go more or less on what is uppermost in their minds. They will do it, sir, and a person can't prevent them. Arthur subscribed to this discovery with a nod. You find it so yourself, sir, I'll be bold to say, said Mrs. Ticket, and we all find it so. It ain't our stations in life that changes us, Mr. Clennam. Thoughts is free. As I was saying, I was thinking of one thing, and thinking of another, and thinking very much of the family. Not of the family in the present times only, but in the past times, too. For when a person does begin thinking of one thing, and thinking of another in that manner, as it's getting dark, what I say is, that all times seem to be present, and a person must get out of that state, and consider before they can say which is which." He nodded again, afraid to utter a word, lest it should present any new opening to Mrs. Tickett's conversational powers. "'In consequence of which,' said Mrs. Tickett, "'when I quivered me eyes, and saw her actual form and figure looking in at the gate, I let them close again, without so much as starting, for that actual form and figure came so pat to the time when it belonged to the house, as much as mine or your own, that I never thought, at the moment, of its having gone away. But, sir, when I quivered my eyes again, and saw that it wasn't there, then it all flooded upon me with a fright, and I jumped up. "'You ran out directly,' said Clennam. I ran out, 
assented Mrs. Tickett, as fast as ever my feet would carry me. And if you'll credit it, Mr. Clennam, there wasn't in the old shining heavens, no, not so much as a finger of that young woman. Passing over the absence from the firmament of this novel constellation, Arthur inquired of Mrs. Tickett if she herself went beyond the gate. "'Went to and fro and high and low,' said Mrs. Tickett, "'and saw no sign of her.' He then asked Mrs. Tickett how long a space of time she supposed there might have been between the two sets of ocular quiverings she had experienced. Mrs. Tickett, though minutely circumstantial in her reply, had no settled opinion between five seconds and ten minutes. She was so plainly at sea on this part of the case, and had so clearly been startled out of slumber, that Clennam was much disposed to regard the appearance as a dream. Without hurting Mrs. Tickett's feelings with that infidel solution of her mystery, he took it away from the cottage with him, and probably would have retained it ever afterwards if a circumstance had not soon happened to change his opinion. He was passing at nightfall along the strand, and the lamplighter was going on before him, under whose hand the street-lamps, blurred by the foggy air, burst out one after another, like so many blazing sunflowers coming into full blow all at once. When a stoppage on the pavement, caused by a train of coal-wagons toiling up from the wharves at the riverside, brought him to a standstill. He had been walking quickly, and going with some current of thought, and the sudden check given to both operations caused him to look freshly about him, as people under such circumstances usually do. Immediately he saw in advance a few people intervening, but still so near to him that he could have touched them by stretching out his arm. Tatty Coram, and a strange man of a remarkable appearance, a swaggering man, with a high nose and a black moustache as false in its colour as his eyes were false in their expression, who wore his heavy cloak with the air of a foreigner. His dress and general appearance were those of a man on travel, and he seemed to have very recently joined the girl. In bending down, being much taller than she was, listening to whatever she said to him, he looked over his shoulder with the suspicious glance of one who was not unused to be mistrustful that his footsteps might be dogged. It was then that Clennam saw his face, as his eyes lowered on the people behind him in the aggregate, without particularly resting upon Clennam's face, or any other. He had scarcely turned his head about again, and it was still bent down, listening to the girl, when the stoppage ceased, and the obstructed stream of people flowed on. Still bending his head and listening to the girl, he went on at her side, and Clennam followed them, resolved to play this unexpected play out, and see where they went. He had hardly made the determination, though he was not long about it, when he was again as suddenly brought up as he had been by the stoppage. They turned short into the Adelphi, the girl evidently leading, and went straight on, as if they were going to the terrace which overhangs the river. There is always to this day a sudden pause in that place to the roar of the great thoroughfare. The many sounds become so deadened that the change is like putting cotton in the ears, or having the head thickly muffled. At that time the contrast was far greater, there being no small steamboats on the river, no landing-places but slippery wooden stairs and foot-causeways, no railroad on the opposite bank, no hanging bridge or fish-market near at hand, no traffic on the nearest bridge of stone, nothing moving on the stream but watermen's wherries and coal-lighters. Long and broad black tiers of the latter, 
moored fast in the mud, as if they were never to move again, made the shore funereal and silent after dark, and kept what little water-movement there was far out towards midstream. At any hour later than sunset, and not least at that hour when most of the people who have anything to eat at home are going home to eat it, and when most of those who have nothing have hardly yet slunk out to beg or steal, it was a deserted place, and looked on a deserted scene. Such was the hour when Clennam stopped at the corner, observing the girl and the strange man as they went down the street. The man's footsteps were so noisy on the echoing stones that he was unwilling to add the sound of his own. But when they had passed the turning, and were in the darkness of the dark corner leading to the terrace, he made after them, with such indifferent appearance of being a casual passenger on his way, as he could assume. When he rounded the dark corner, they were walking along the terrace towards a figure which was coming towards them. If he had seen it by itself, under such conditions of gas-lamp mist and distance, he might not have known it at first sight, but with the figure of the girl to prompt him, he at once recognised Miss Wade. He stopped at the corner, seeming to look back expectantly up the street, as if he had made an appointment with someone to meet him there, but he kept a careful eye on the three. When they came together, the man took off his hat, and made Miss Wade a bow. The girl appeared to say a few words, as though she presented him, or accounted for his being late, or early, or what not, and then fell back a pace or so behind, by herself. Miss Wade and the man then began to walk up and down, the man having the appearance of being extremely courteous and complimentary in manner, Miss Wade having the appearance of being extremely haughty. When they came down to the corner and turned, she was saying, "'If I pinch myself for it, sir, that is my business. Confine yourself to yours, and ask me no question.' "'By heaven, ma'am,' he replied, making her another bow, "'it was my profound respect for the strength of your character, and my admiration of your beauty.' "'I want neither the one nor the other from any one,' said she, "'and certainly not from you of all creatures. Go on with your report.' "'Am I pardoned?' he asked, with an air of half-abashed gallantry. "'You are paid,' she said, "'and that is all you want.' Whether the girl hung behind, because she was not to hear the business, or, as already knowing enough about it, Clennam could not determine. They turned, and she turned. She looked away at the river, as she walked with her hands folded before her, and that was all he could make of her without showing his face. There happened, by good fortune, to be a lounger, really waiting for some one, and he sometimes looked over the railing at the water, and sometimes came to the dark corner and looked up the street, rendering Arthur less conspicuous. When Miss Wade and the man came back again, she was saying, "'You must wait until to-morrow.' "'A thousand pardons?' he returned. "'My faith! Then it's not convenient to-night?' "'No.' "'I tell you I must get it before I can give it to you.' She stopped in the roadway, as if to put an end to the conference. He, of course, stopped too, and the girl stopped. "'It's a little inconvenient,' said the man. "'A little, but wholly blue. That's nothing in such a service. I am without money to-night, by chance. I have a good banker in this city, but I would not wish to draw upon the house until the time when I shall draw for a round sum. "'Harriet,' said Miss Wade, "'arrange with him, this gentleman here, 
for sending him some money to-morrow. She said it with a slur of the word gentleman, which was more contemptuous than any emphasis, and walked slowly on. The man bent his head again, and the girl spoke to him as they both followed her. Clennam ventured to look at the girl as they moved away. He could note that her rich black eyes were fastened upon the man with a scrutinizing expression, and that she kept at a little distance from him, as they walked side by side to the further end of the terrace. A loud and altered clank upon the pavement warned him, before he could discern what was passing there, that the man was coming back alone. Clennam lounged into the road towards the railing, and the man passed at a quick swing, with the end of his cloak thrown over his shoulder, singing a scrap of a French song. The whole vista had no one in it now but himself. The lounger had lounged out of view, and Miss Wade and Tatty Coram were gone. More than ever bent on seeing what became of them, and on having some information to give his good friend Mr. Meagles, he went out at the further end of the terrace, looking cautiously about him. He rightly judged that, at first at all events, they would go in a contrary direction from their late companion. He soon saw them in a neighbouring by-street, which was not a thoroughfare, evidently allowing time for the man to get well out of their way. They walked leisurely, arm in arm, down one side of the street, and returned on the opposite side. When they came back to the street-corner, they changed their pace for the pace of people with an object and a distance before them, and walked steadily away. Clennam, no less steadily, kept them in sight. They crossed the Strand, and passed through Covent Garden, under the windows of his old lodging where dear little Dorrit had come that night, and slanted away northeast until they passed the great building whence Tatty Coram derived her name, and turned into the Gray's Inn Road. Clennam was quite at home here, in the right of Flora, not to mention the Patriarch and Panks, and kept them in view with ease. He was beginning to wonder where they might be going next, when that wonder was lost in the great wonder with which he saw them turn into the patriarchal street. That wonder was in its turn swallowed up on the greater wonder with which he saw them stop at the patriarchal door. A low double knock at the bright brass knocker, a gleam of light into the road from the open door, a brief pause for inquiry and answer, and the door was shut, and they were housed. After looking at the surrounding objects for assurance that he was not in an odd dream, and after pacing a little while before the house, Arthur knocked at the door. It was opened by the usual maid-servant, and she showed him up at once, with her usual alacrity, to Flora's sitting-room. There was no one with Flora but Mr. F.'s aunt, which respectable gentlewoman, basking in a balmy atmosphere of tea and toast, was ensconced in an easy-chair by the fireside, with a little table at her elbow, and a clean white handkerchief spread over her lap, on which two pieces of toast at that moment awaited consumption. Bending over a steaming vessel of tea, and looking through the steam, and breathing forth the steam, like a malignant Chinese enchantress engaged in the performance of unholy rites, Mr. F.'s aunt put down her great teacup, and exclaimed, "'Drat him! If he ain't come back again!' It would seem from the foregoing exclamation that this uncompromising relative of the lamented Mr. F., measuring time by the acuteness of her sensations and not by the clock, supposed Clennam to have lately gone away, whereas at least a quarter of a year had elapsed since he had had the temerity to present himself before her. "'My goodness, Arthur!' cried Flora, rising to give him a cordial reception. 
Doyce and Clennam, what a start, and a surprise, for though not far from the machinery and foundry business, and surely might be taken sometimes if at no other time about midday when a glass of sherry and a humble sandwich of whatever cold meat and larder might not come amiss, nor waste the worse for being friendly, for you know you buy it somewhere, and wherever thought a profit must be made, or they would never keep the place that stands in reason without a motive still never seen and learnt now not to be expected. For, as Mr. F. himself said, if seeing is believing, not seeing is believing too, and when you don't see, you may fully believe you're not remembered, not that I expect you, Arthur Doyce. Clennam to remember me. Why should I, for the days are gone, but bring another teacup here directly and tell her French toast and place it near the fire? Arthur was in the greatest anxiety to explain the object of his visit, but was put off for the moment, in spite of himself, by what he understood of the reproachful purport of these words, and by the genuine pleasure she testified in seeing him. "'And now, pray tell me something all you know,' said Flora, drawing her chair near to his. "'About the good, dear, quiet little thing, and all the changes of her fortunes, carriage, people, now no doubt, and horses without number, most romantic a coat of arms, of course, and wild beasts on their hind legs, showing it as if it was a copy they had done with mouths from ear to ear. Good gracious! And has she her health, which is the first consideration, after all, for what is wealth without it, Mr. F. himself so often saying, when his twinges came that sixpence a day, and find yourself at no gout so much preferable, not that he could have lived on anything like it, being the last man, or that the previous little thing, though far too familiar in expression, now had any tendency of that sort, much too slight and small, but looked so fragile, Besser. Mr. F.'s aunt, who had eaten a piece of toast, down to the crust, here solemnly handed the crust to Flora, who ate it for her as a matter of business. Mr. F.'s aunt then moistened her ten fingers in slow succession at her lips, and wiped them in exactly the same order on the white handkerchief, then took the other piece of toast, and fell to work upon it. While pursuing this routine, she looked at Clennam with an expression of such intense severity that he felt obliged to look at her in return, against his personal inclinations. "'She is in Italy, with all her family, Flora,' he said, when the dreaded lady was occupied again. "'In Italy? Is she really?' said Flora, with the grapes growing everywhere, and lava necklaces and bracelets too, that land of poetry, with burning mountains picturesque beyond belief, though if the organ-boys came away from the neighbourhood not to be scorched, nobody can wonder, being so young and bringing their white mice with them most humane, is she really in that favoured land with nothing but blue about her, and dying gladiators and belvederes, though Mr. F. himself did not believe for his objection when in spirits, was that the images could not be true, there being no medium between expensive quantities of linen badly got up and all increases, and none whatever, which certainly does not seem probable, though possibly in consequence of the extremes of rich and poor which may account for it. Arthur tried to edge in a word, but Flora hurried on again. "'Venice preserved, too,' said she. "'I think you have been there, is it well, or ill-preserved, for people differ so, and macaroni, if they really eat it like the conjurers, why not cut it shorter? You are acquainted, Arthur. Oh, dear, Doyce and Clennam, at least not dear, and most assuredly not Doyce, for I have not the pleasure, but pray excuse me, acquainted, I believe, with Mantua. What has it got to do with Mantua, making for I never have been able to conceive it?' "'I believe there is no connection, Flora, between the two. Arthur was beginning, when she caught him up again. "'Upon your word, no, isn't there? I never did. But that's like me. I've run away for an idea, and having none to spare, I keep it. Alas, there was a time, dear Arthur, that is to say decidedly not dear, nor Arthur, neither, but you, you understand me when one bright idea gilded that what's-his-name horizon of etc., but it's darkly clouded now, and all is over.' Arthur's increasing wish to speak of something very different was by this time so plainly written on his face that Flora stopped, in a tender look, and asked him what it was. "'I have the greatest desire, Flora, to speak to someone who is now in this house—with Mr. Casby, no doubt—someone whom I saw come in, and who, in a misguided and deplorable way, has deserted the house of a friend of mine. 
"'Papa, see so many and such odd people,' said Flora, rising, "'that I shouldn't venture to go down for any one but you, Arthur, but for you. I would willingly go down in a diving-bell. Much more a dining-room, and will come back directly, if you'd mind, and at the same time not mind Mr. F.'s aunt while I'm gone.' With these words, and a parting glance, Flora bustled out, leaving Clennam under dreadful apprehension of this terrible charge. The first variation, which manifested itself in Mr. F.'s aunt's demeanour, when she had finished a piece of toast, was a loud and prolonged sniff. Finding it impossible to avoid construing this demonstration into a defiance of himself, its gloomy significance being unmistakable, Clennam looked plaintively at the excellent though prejudiced lady from whom it emanated, in the hope that she might be disarmed by a meek submission. "'None of your eyes at me,' said Mr. F.'s aunt, shivering with hostility. "'Take that!' That was the crust of the piece of toast. Clennam accepted the boon, with a look of gratitude, and held it in his hand, under the pressure of a little embarrassment, which was not relieved, when Mr. F.'s aunt, elevating her voice into a cry of considerable power, exclaimed, "'He has a proud stomach, this chap. He's too proud a chap to eat it!' And coming out of her chair, shook her venerable fist so very close to his nose as to tickle the surface. But for the timely return of Flora, to find him in this difficult situation, further consequences might have ensued. Flora, without the least discomposure or surprise, but congratulating the old lady in an approving manner on being very lively to-night, handed her back to her chair. "'He has a proud stomach, this chap,' said Mr. F.'s relation, on being reseated. "'Give him a meal of chaff.' "'Oh, I don't think he would like that, aunt,' returned Flora. "'Give him a meal of chaff, I tell you,' said Mr. F.'s aunt, glaring round Flora on her enemy. "'It's the only thing for a proud stomach. Let him eat up every morsel. Drat him! Give him a meal of chaff!' Under a general pretence of helping him to this refreshment, Flora got him out on the staircase. Mr. F.'s aunt even then constantly reiterating, with inexpressible bitterness, that he was a chap and had a proud stomach, and over and over again insisting on that equine provision being made for him which she had already so strongly prescribed. "'Such an inconvenient staircase and so many corner stairs, Arthur,' whispered Flora. "'Would you object to putting your arm round me under my pelerine?' With a sense of going downstairs in a highly ridiculous manner, Clennam descended in the required attitude, and only released his fair burden at the dining-room door. Indeed, even there she was rather difficult to be got rid of, remaining in his embrace to murmur, "'Arthur, for mercy's sake, don't breathe it to papa!' She accompanied Arthur into the room, where the patriarch sat alone, with his list shoes on the fender, twirling his thumbs as if he had never left off. The youthful patriarch, aged ten, looked out of his picture-frame above him with no calmer air than he. Both smooth heads were alike, beaming, blundering, and bumpy. "'Mr. Clennam, I am glad to see you. I hope you are well, sir, I hope you are well. Please to sit down, please to sit down.' "'I had hoped, sir,' said Clennam, doing so, and looking round with a face of blank disappointment, "'not to find you alone.' "'Ah, indeed,' said the patriarch sweetly. "'Ah, indeed.' "'I told you so, you know, papa,' cried Flora. "'Ah, to be sure,' returned the patriarch. "'Yes, just so. Ah, to be sure.' "'Pray, sir,' demanded Clennam anxiously, "'is Miss Wade gone?' "'Miss—oh, you call her Wade,' 
returned Mr. Casby, highly proper. Arthur quickly returned, What do you call her? Wade, said Mr. Casby. Oh, always Wade. After looking at the philanthropic visage, and the long silky white hair for a few seconds, during which Mr. Casby twirled his thumbs, and smiled at the fire, as if he were benevolently wishing it to burn him that he might forgive it, Arthur began, "'I beg your pardon, Mr. Casby.' "'Not so, not so,' said the patriarch. "'Not so. But Miss Wade had an attendant with her, a young woman brought up by friends of mine, over whom her influence is not considered very salutary, and to whom I should be glad to have the opportunity of giving the assurance that she has not yet forfeited the interests of those protectors. "'Really, really,' returned the patriarch, "'will you, therefore, be so good as to give me the address of Miss Wade?' "'Dear, dear, dear,' said the patriarch, "'how very unfortunate!' "'If you had only sent in to me when they were here. "'I observed the young woman, Mr. Clennam, "'a fine, full-coloured young woman, Mr. Clennam, "'with very dark hair and very dark eyes, "'if I mistake not. "'If I mistake not?' "'Arthur assented, and said once more with new expression, "'If you would be so good as to give me the address.' "'Dear, dear, dear,' exclaimed the patriarch in sweet regret. Tut, tut, tut! What a pity! What a pity! I have no address, sir. Miss Wade mostly lives abroad, Mr. Clennam. She has done so for some years, and she is, if I may say so, of a fellow-creature and a lady, fitful and uncertain to a fault, Mr. Clennam. I may not see her again for a long, long time. I may never see her again. What a pity! What a pity! Clennam saw now that he had as much hope of getting assistance out of the portrait as out of the patriarch. But he said, nevertheless, Mr. Casby, could you, for the satisfaction of the friends I have mentioned, and under any obligation of secrecy that you may consider it your duty to impose, give me any information at all touching Miss Wade? I have seen her abroad and I have seen her at home, but I know nothing of her. Could you give me any account of her, whatever?' "'None,' returned the patriarch, shaking his big head with his utmost benevolence. "'None at all. Dear, 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 what a real pity that she stayed so short a time and you delayed. As confidential agency business, agency business, I have occasionally paid this lady money, but what satisfaction is it to you, sir, to know that?' "'Truly, none at all,' said Clennam. "'Truly,' assented the patriarch, with a shining face, as he philanthropically smiled at the fire, "'none at all, sir. You hit the wise answer, Mr. Clennam. Truly, "'None at all, sir.' His turning of his smooth thumbs over one another as he sat there was so typical to Clennam of the way in which he would make the subject revolve if it were pursued, never showing any new part of it, nor allowing it to make the smallest advance, that it did much to help to convince him of his labour having been in vain. He might have taken any time to think about it, for Mr. Casby, while accustomed to get on anywhere by leaving everything to his bumps and his white hair, knew his strength to lie in silence. So there Casby sat, 
twirling and twirling, and making his polished head and forehead look largely benevolent in every knob. With this spectacle before him, Arthur had risen to go, and from the inner dock, where the good ship Panks was hove down, when out in no cruising ground, the noise was heard of that steamer labouring towards him. It struck Arthur that the noise began demonstratively far off, as though Mr. Panks sought to impress on anyone who might happen to think about it that he was working on from out of hearing. Mr. Panks and he shook hands, and the former brought his employer a letter or two to sign. Mr. Panks, in shaking hands, merely scratched his eyebrow with his left forefinger and snorted once, but Clennam, who understood him better now than of old, comprehended that he had almost done for the evening and wished to say a word to him outside. Therefore, when he had taken his leave of Mr. Casby, and, which was a more difficult process, of Flora, he sauntered into the neighbourhood on Mr. Panks's line of road. He had waited but a short time when Mr. Panks appeared. Mr. Panks, shaking hands again, with another expressive snort, and taking off his hat to put his hair up, Arthur thought he received his cue to speak to him, as one who knew pretty well what had just now passed. Therefore he said, without any preface, "'I suppose they were really gone, Panks?' "'Yes,' replied Panks. "'They were really gone.' "'Does he know where to find that lady?' "'Can't say. I should think so.' Mr. Panks did not. No, Mr. Panks did not. Did Mr. Panks know anything about her? "'I expect,' rejoined that worthy, "'I know as much about her as she knows about herself. She is somebody's child. Anybody's. Nobody's. Put her in a room in London here, with any six people old enough to be her parents, and her parents may be there, for anything she knows. They may be in any house she sees. They may be in any churchyard she passes. She may run up against em in any street.' She may make chance acquaintance of him at any time, and never know it. She knows nothing about him. She knows nothing about any relative whatever. Never did. Never will. Mr. Casby could enlighten her, perhaps? Maybe, said Panks. I expect so, but don't know. He has long had money, not overmuch as I make out, in trust to dole out to her when she can't do without it. Sometimes she's proud and won't touch it for a length of time. Sometimes she's so poor that she must have it. She writhes under her life. A woman more angry, passionate, reckless, and revengeful. Never lived. She came for money to-night. Said she had peculiar occasion for it. "'I think,' observed Clennam, musing, "'I, by chance, know what occasion. I mean into whose pocket the money is to go.' "'Indeed,' said Panks, "'if it's a compact, I recommend that party to be exact in it. I wouldn't trust myself to that woman, young and handsome as she is, if I had wronged her. No, not for twice my proprietor's money. Unless,' Panks added as a saving clause, "'I had a lingering illness on me, and wanted to get it over.' Arthur, hurriedly reviewing his own observation of her, found it to tally pretty nearly with Mr. Panks's view. "'The wonder is to me,' pursued Panks, "'that she has never done for my proprietor, as the only person connected with her story she can lay hold of. Mentioning that, I may tell you, between ourselves, that I am sometimes tempted to do for him myself.' Arthur started, and said, "'Dear Mr. Panks, don't say that.' "'Understand me.' said Panks, extending five cropped coaly fingernails at Arthur's arm. 
I don't mean cut his throat, but by all that's precious, if he goes too far, I'll cut his hair. Having exhibited himself in the new light of enunciating this tremendous threat, Mr. Panks, with a countenance of grave import, snorted several times and steamed away. End of Book Two, Chapter Nine. Book Two, Chapter Ten of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Riches. Chapter Ten: The Dreams of Mrs. Flintwinch Thicken. The shady waiting rooms of the circumlocution office, where he passed a good deal of time in company with various troublesome convicts who were under sentence to be broken alive on that wheel, had afforded Arthur Clennam ample leisure, in three or four successive days, to exhaust the subject of his late glimpse of Miss Wade and Tatty Coram. He had been able to make no more of it and no less of it, and in this unsatisfactory condition he was fain to leave it. During this space he had not been to his mother's dismal old house. One of his customary evenings for repairing thither, now coming round, he left his dwelling and his partner at nearly nine o'clock, and slowly walked in the direction of that grim home of his youth. It always affected his imagination, as wrathful, mysterious, and sad, and his imagination was sufficiently impressible to see the whole neighbourhood under some tinge of its dark shadow. As he went along upon a dreary night, the dim streets by which he went seemed all depositories of oppressive secrets. The deserted counting-houses, with their secrets of books and papers locked up in chests and safes, the banking-houses, with their secrets of strong-rooms and wells, the keys of which were in a very few secret pockets and a very few secret breasts, the secrets of all the dispersed grinders in the vast mill, among whom there were doubtless plunderers, forgers and trust-betrayers of many sorts, whom the light of any day that dawned might reveal. He could have fancied that these things, in hiding, imparted a heaviness to the air. The shadow, thickening and thickening, as he approached its source, he thought of the secrets of the lonely church vaults, where the people who had hoarded and secreted in iron coffers were in their turn similarly hoarded, not yet at rest from doing harm, and then of the secrets of the river, as it rolled its turbid tide between two frowning wildernesses of secrets, extending thick and dense for many miles, and warding off the free air and the free country swept by winds and wings of birds. The shadow still darkening as he drew near the house, the melancholy room which his father had once occupied, haunted by the appealing face he had himself seen fade away with him, when there was no other watcher by the bed, arose before his mind. Its close air was secret, the gloom, and must, and dust of the whole tenement were secret. At the heart of it his mother presided, inflexible of face, indomitable of will, firmly holding all the secrets of her own and his father's life, and austerely opposing herself, front to front, to the great final secret of all life. He had turned into the narrow and steep street from which the court of enclosure wherein the house stood opened when another footstep turned into it behind him, and so close upon his own that he was jostled to the wall. As his mind was teeming with these thoughts, 
the encounter took him altogether unprepared, so that the other passenger had had time to say boisterously, "'Pardon, not my fault,' and to pass on before the instant had elapsed which was requisite to his recovery of the realities about him. When that moment had flashed away, he saw that the man striding on before him was the man who had been so much in his mind during the last few days. It was no casual resemblance, helped out by the force of the impression the man made upon him. It was the man, the man he had followed in company with the girl, and whom he had overheard talking to Miss Wade. The street was a sharp descent, and was crooked too, and the man, who although not drunk, had the air of being flushed with some strong drink, went down it so fast that Clennam lost him as he looked at him. With no defined intention of following him, but with an impulse to keep the figure in view a little longer, Clennam quickened his pace to pass the twist in the street which hid him from his sight. On turning it, he saw the man no more. Standing now, close to the gateway of his mother's house, he looked down the street, but it was empty. There was no projecting shadow large enough to obscure the man, there was no turning near that he could have taken, nor had there been any audible sound of the opening and closing of a door. Nevertheless, he concluded that the man must have had a key in his hand, and must have opened one of the many house-doors and gone in. Ruminating on this strange chance and strange glimpse, he turned into the courtyard, as he looked by mere habit towards the feebly lighted windows of his mother's room, his eyes encountered the figure he had just lost, standing against the iron railings of the little waste enclosure, looking up at those windows, and laughing to himself. Some of the many vagrant cats, who were also prowling about there by night, and who had taken fright at him, appeared to have stopped when he had stopped, and were looking at him with eyes by no means unlike his own, from tops of walls and porches, and other safe points of pause. He had only halted for a moment to entertain himself thus. He immediately went forward, throwing the end of his cloak off his shoulder as he went, ascended the unevenly sunken steps, and knocked a sounding knock at the door. Clennam's surprise was not so absorbing but that he took his resolution without any incertitude. He went up to the door too, and ascended the steps too. His friend looked at him with a braggart air, and sang to himself, who passes by this road so late, Compagnon de la Majolaine, Who passes by this road so late, Always gay. After which he knocked again. You are impatient, sir, said Arthur. I am, sir, death of my life, sir, returned the stranger. It's my character to be impatient. The sound of Mistress Affery, cautiously chaining the door before she opened it, caused them both to look that way. Affery opened it a very little, with a flaring candle in her hands, and asked who was that, at that time of night, with that knock. "'Why, Arthur,' she added, with astonishment, seeing him first, "'not you, sure. Oh, Lord save us, no!' she cried out, seeing the other, "'Him again!' "'It's true. Him again, dear Mrs. Flintwinch,' cried the stranger. "'Open the door, and let me take my dear friend Jeremiah to my arms. Open the door, and let me hasten myself to embrace my Flintwinch.' "'He's not at home,' cried Affery. "'Fetch him!' cried the stranger 
fetch my friend winch tell him that it is his old blandois who comes from arriving in england tell him that it is his little boy who is here his cabbage his well-beloved open the door beautiful mrs flintwinch and in the meantime let me to pass upstairs to present my compliments homage of blandois to my lady my lady lives always it is well open then to arthur's increased surprise mistress affery stretching her eyes wide at himself as if in warning that this was not a gentleman for him to interfere with drew back the chain and opened the door the stranger without ceremony walked into the hall leaving arthur to follow him dispatch then achieve then bring my flintwinch announce me to my lady cried the stranger clanking about the stone floor pray tell me affery said arthur aloud and sternly as he surveyed him from head to foot with indignation who is this gentleman pray tell me affery the stranger repeated in his turn who <laughs> who is this gentleman the voice of mrs clennam opportunely called from her chamber above affery let them both come up arthur come straight to me arthur exclaimed blandois taking off his hat at arm's length and bringing his heels together from a great stride in making him a flourishing bow the son of my lady i am the all-devoted of the son of my lady arthur looked at him again in no more flattering manner than before and turning on his heel without acknowledgment went upstairs the visitor followed him upstairs mistress affery took the key from behind the door and deftly slipped out to fetch her lord a bystander informed of the previous appearance of monsieur blandois in that room would have observed a difference in mrs clennam's present reception of him her face was not one to betray it and her suppressed manner and her set voice were equally under her control it wholly consisted in her never taking her eyes off his face from the moment of his entrance and in her twice or thrice when he was becoming noisy swaying herself a very little forward in the chair in which she sat upright with her hands immovable upon its elbows as if she gave him the assurance that he should be presently heard at any length he would arthur did not fail to observe this though the difference between the present occasion and the former was not within his power of observation madame said blandois do me the honour to present me to monsieur your son it appears to me madame that monsieur your son is disposed to complain of me he is not polite sir said arthur striking in expeditiously whoever you are and however you come to be here if i were the master of this house i would lose no time in placing you on the outside of it but you are not said his mother without looking at him unfortunately for the gratification of your unreasonable temper you are not the master arthur i make no claim to be mother if i object to this person's manner of conducting himself here and object to it so much that if i had any authority here i certainly would not suffer him to remain a minute i object on your account in the case of objection being necessary she returned i could object for myself and of course i should the subject of their dispute who had seated himself laughed aloud and wrapped his legs with his hand you have no right 
said Mrs. Clennam, always intent on Blandois, however directly she addressed her son, to speak to the prejudice of any gentleman, least of all a gentleman from another country, because he does not conform to your standard, or square his behaviour by your rules, it is possible that the gentleman may, on similar grounds, object to you. "'I hope so,' returned Arthur. "'The gentleman,' pursued Mrs. Clennam, "'on a former occasion, brought a letter of recommendation to us from highly esteemed and responsible correspondents. I am perfectly unacquainted with the gentleman's object in coming here at present. I am entirely ignorant of it, and cannot be supposed likely to be able to form the remotest guess at its nature.' Her habitual frown became stronger, as she very slowly and weightily emphasised those words. But, when the gentleman proceeds to explain his object, as I shall beg him to have the goodness to do to myself and Flintwinch, when Flintwinch returns, it will prove, no doubt, to be one more or less in the usual way of our business, which it will be both our pleasure and our business to advance. It can be nothing else. "'We shall see, madame,' said the man of business. "'We shall see,' she assented. "'The gentleman is acquainted with Flintwinch, and when the gentleman was in London last, I remember to have heard that he and Flintwinch had some entertainment or good fellowship together. I am not in the way of knowing much that passes outside this room, and the jingle of little worldly things beyond it does not much interest me, but I remember to have heard that.' "'Right, madame, it is true.' He laughed again, and whistled the burden of the tune he had sung at the door. "'Therefore, Arthur,' said his mother, "'the gentleman comes here as an acquaintance, and no stranger, and it is much to be regretted that your unreasonable temper should have found offence in him. I regret it. I say so to the gentleman. You will not say so, I know. Therefore I say it for myself and Flintwinch, since with us too the gentleman's business lies.' The key of the door below was now heard in the lock, and the door was heard to open and close. In due sequence Mr. Flintwinch appeared, on whose entrance the visitor rose from his chair, laughing loud, and folded him in a close embrace. "'How goes it, my cherished friend?' said he. "'How goes the world, my Flintwinch? Rose-coloured? So much the better, so much the better.' "'Ah, but you look charming! Ah, but you look young and fresh as the flowers of spring! Ah, good little boy! Brave child! Brave child!' While heaping these compliments on Mr. Flintwinch, he rolled him about with a hand on each of his shoulders, until the staggerings of that gentleman, who under the circumstances was drier and more twisted than ever, were like those of a teetotum nearly spent. I had a presentiment last time, that we should be better and more intimately acquainted. Is it coming on you, Flintwinch? Is it yet coming on?' "'Why, no, sir,' retorted Mr. Flintwinch. "'Not unusually. Hadn't you better be seated? You've been calling for some more of that port, sir, I guess.' "'Ha, <laughs> ha, little joker, little pig!' cried the visitor, <laughs> and throwing Mr. Flintwinch away as a closing piece of raillery, he sat down again. The amazement, suspicion, resentment, and shame with which Arthur looked on at all this struck him dumb. Mr. Flintwinch, who had spun backward some two or three yards under the impetus last given to him, brought himself up with a face completely unchanged in its stolidity, 
except as it was affected by shortness of breath, and looked hard at Arthur. Not a whit less reticent and wooden was Mr. Flintwinch outwardly, than in the usual course of things, the only perceptible difference in him being that the knot of cravat which was generally under his ear had worked round to the back of his head, where it formed an ornamental appendage not unlike a bag-wig, and gave him something of a courtly appearance. As Mrs. Clennam never moved her eyes from Blandois, on whom they had some effect, as a steady look has on a lower sort of dog, so Jeremiah never removed his from Arthur. It was as if they had tacitly agreed to take their different provinces. Thus, in the ensuing silence, Jeremiah stood scraping his chin, and looking at Arthur, as though he were trying to screw his thoughts out of him with an instrument. After a little while, the visitor, as if he felt the silence irksome, rose, and impatiently put himself with his back to the sacred fire which had burned through so many years. Thereupon Mrs. Clennam said, moving one of her hands for the first time, and moving it very slightly with an action of dismissal, "'Please to leave us to our business, Arthur.' "'Mother, I do so with reluctance.' "'Never mind with what,' she returned, "'or with what not. Please to leave us. Come back.' at any other time when you may consider it a duty to bury half an hour wearily here. Good-night.' She held up her muffled fingers, that he might touch them with his, according to their usual custom, and he stood over her wheelchair to touch her face with his lips. He thought, then, that her cheek was more strained than usual, and that it was colder. As he followed the direction of her eyes, in rising again, towards Mr. Fintwinch's good friend, Mr. Blandois, Mr. Blandois snapped his finger and thumb with one loud, contemptuous snap. "'I leave your—your your business acquaintance in my mother's room, Mr. Flintwinch,' said Clennam, with a great deal of surprise and a great deal of unwillingness. The person referred to snapped his finger and thumb again. "'Good night, mother.' "'Good night.' "'I had a friend once, my good comrade Flintwinch.' said Blandois, standing astride before the fire, and so evidently saying it to arrest Clennam's retreating steps, that he lingered near the door. "'I had a friend once, who had heard so much of the dark side of the city and its ways, that he wouldn't have confided himself alone by night with two people who had an interest in getting him under the ground. My faith, not even in a respectable house like this, unless he was bodily too strong for them. Bah! What a poltroon, my Flintwinch, eh? A cur, sir. Agreed. A cur. But he wouldn't have done it, my Flintwinch, unless he had known them to have the will to silence him without the power. He wouldn't have drunk from a glass of water under such circumstances, not even in a respectable house like this, my Flintwinch, unless he had seen one of them drink first, and swallow too. Disdaining to speak, and indeed not very well able, for he was half choking, Clennam only glanced at the visitor as he passed out. The visitor saluted him with another parting snap, and his nose came down over his moustache, and his moustache went up under his nose in an ominous and ugly smile. "'For heaven's sake, Avery,' whispered Clennam as she opened the door for him in the dark hall, and he groped his way to the sight of the night sky, 
"'What is going on here?' Her own appearance was sufficiently ghastly, standing in the dark, with her apron thrown over her head, and speaking behind it in a low, deadened voice. "'Don't ask me anything, Arthur. I've been in a dream for ever so long. Go away.' He went out, and she shut the door upon him. He looked up at the windows of his mother's room, and the dim light, deadened by the yellow blinds, seemed to say a response after Afri, and to mutter, "'Don't ask me anything. Go away.'" End of Book Two, Chapter Ten Book Two Chapter Eleven of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Riches. Chapter Eleven. A Letter from Little Dorrit. Dear Mr. Clennam, as I said in my last that it was best for nobody to write to me and as my sending you another little letter can therefore give you no other trouble than the trouble of reading it perhaps you may not find leisure for even that though i hope you will some day i am now going to devote an hour to writing to you again this time i write from rome we left venice before mr and mrs gowan did but they were not so long upon the road as we were and did not travel by the same way and so when we arrived we found them in a lodging here in a place called the Via Gregoriana. I dare say you know it. Now I am going to tell you all I can about them, because I know that is what you most want to hear. Theirs is not a very comfortable lodging, but perhaps I thought it less so, when I first saw it, than you would have done, because you have been in many different countries, and have seen many different customs. Of course it is a far, far better place, millions of times, than any I have ever been used to until lately, and I fancy I don't look at it with my own eyes, but with hers, for it would be easy to see that she has always been brought up in a tender and happy home, even if she had not told me so with great love for it. Well, it is a rather bare lodging, up a rather dark common staircase, and it is nearly all a large dull room where Mr. Gowan paints. The windows are blocked up where any one could look out, and the walls have been all drawn over with chalk and charcoal by others who have lived there before—oh, I should think, for years. There is a curtain, more dust-coloured than red, which divides it, and the part behind the curtain makes the private sitting-room. When I first saw her there, she was alone, and her work had fallen out of her hand, and she was looking up at the sky, shining through the tops of the windows. "'Pray do not be uneasy when I tell you, but it was not quite so airy, nor so bright, nor so cheerful, nor so happy and youthful altogether, as I should have liked it to be. On account of Mr. Gowan's painting Papa's picture, which I am not quite convinced I should have known from the likeness if I had not seen him doing it, I have had more opportunities of being with her since then than I might have had without this fortunate chance. She is very much alone.' very much alone indeed. Shall I tell you about the second time I saw her? I went one day when it happened that I could run round by myself at four or five o'clock in the afternoon. She was then dining alone, and her solitary dinner had been brought in from somewhere, 
over a kind of brazier with a fire in it, and she had no company or prospect of company that I could see but the old man who had brought it. He was telling her a long story of robbers outside the walls being taken up by a stone statue of a saint, to entertain her, as he said to me when I came out, because he had a daughter of his own, though she was not so pretty. I ought now to mention Mr. Gowan, before I say what little more I have to say about her. He must admire her beauty, and he must be proud of her, for everybody praises it, and he must be fond of her, and I do not doubt that he is, but in his way. You know, his way, and if it appears as careless and discontented in your eyes as it does in mine, I am not wrong in thinking that it might be better suited to her. If it does not seem so to you, I am quite sure I am wholly mistaken, for your unchanged poor child confides in your knowledge and goodness more than she could ever tell you if she was to try. But don't be frightened, I am not going to try. Owing, as I think, if, if you think so too, to Mr. Gowan's unsettled and dissatisfied way, he applies himself to his profession very little. He does nothing steadily or patiently, but equally takes things up and throws them down, and does them or leaves them undone, without caring about them. When I have heard him talking to Papa during the sittings for the picture, I have sat wondering whether it could be that he has no belief in anybody else, because he has no belief in himself. Is it so? I wonder what you will say when you come to this. I know how you will look, and I can almost hear the voice in which you would tell me on the iron bridge. Mr. Gowan goes out a good deal among what is considered the best company here, though he does not look as if he enjoyed it or liked it when he is with it, and she sometimes accompanies him, but lately she has gone out very little. I think I have noticed that they have an inconsistent way of speaking about her, as if she had made some great self-interested success in marrying Mr. Gowan, though at the same time the very same people would not have dreamed of taking him for themselves or their daughters. Then he goes into the country besides to think about making sketches, and in all places where there are visitors he has a large acquaintance and is very well known. Besides all this he has a friend who is much in his society, both at home and away from home, though he treats this friend very coolly, and is very uncertain in his behaviour to him, I am quite sure, because she has told me so, that she does not like this friend. He is so revolting to me, too, that his being away from here at present is quite a relief to my mind. How much more to hers! But what I particularly want you to know, and why I have resolved to tell you so much, while I am afraid it may make you a little uncomfortable, without occasion, is this. She is so true, and so devoted, and knows so completely that all her love and duty are his for ever, that you may be certain she will love him, admire him, praise him, and conceal all his faults until she dies. I believe she conceals them, and always will conceal them, even from herself. She has given him a heart that can never be taken back, and however much he may try it, he will never wear out its affection. You know the truth of this, as you know everything far, far better than I, but I cannot help telling you what a nature she shows, and you can never think too well of her. I have not yet called her by her name in this letter, but we are such friends now that I do so when we are quietly together, and she speaks to me by name. I mean, 
not my Christian name, but the name you gave me. When she began to call me Amy, I told her my short story, and that you had always called me Little Dorrit. I told her that the name was much dearer to me than any other, and so she calls me Little Dorrit, too. Perhaps you have not heard from her father or mother yet, and may not know that she has a baby son. He was born only two days ago, and just a week after they came. It has made them very happy. However, I must tell you, as I am to tell you all, that I fancy they are under a constraint with Mr. Gowan, and that they feel as if his mocking way with them was sometimes a slight, given to their love for her. It was but yesterday, when I was there, that I saw Mr. Meagles change colour, and get up and go out, as if he was afraid that he might say so, unless he prevented himself by that means. Yet I am sure they are both so considerate, good-humoured and reasonable, that he might spare them. It is hard on him not to think of them a little more. I stopped at the last full stop to read all this over. It looked at first as if I was taking on myself to understand and explain so much that I was half inclined not to send it. But when I thought it over a little, I felt more hopeful for your knowing at once that I had only been watchful for you, and had only noticed what I think I have noticed because I was quickened by your interest in it. Indeed, you may be sure that is the truth. And now I have done with the subject in the present letter, and have little left to say. We are all quite well, and Fanny improves every day. You can hardly think how kind she is to me, and what pains she takes with me. She has a lover, who has followed her first all the way from Switzerland, and then all the way from Venice, and who has just confided to me that he means to follow her everywhere. I was much confused by his speaking to me about it, but he would. I did not know what to say, but at last I told him that I thought he had better not. For Fanny, but I did not tell him this, is much too spirited and clever to suit him. Still, he said he would, all the same. I have no lover, of course. If you should ever get so far as this, in this long letter, you will perhaps say, Surely little Dorrit will not leave off without telling me something about her travels, and surely it is time she did. I think it is indeed, but I don't know what to tell you. Since we left Venice we have been in a great many wonderful places, Genoa and Florence among them, and have seen so many wonderful sights that I am always giddy when I think what a crowd they make. But you can tell me so much more about them than I can tell you, that why should I tire you with my accounts and descriptions? Dear Mr. Clennam, as I had the courage to tell you what the familiar difficulties in my travelling mind were before, I will not be a coward now. One of my frequent thoughts is this. Old as these cities are, their age itself is hardly so curious to my reflections as that they should have been in their places all through those days when I did not even know of the existence of more than two or three of them, and when I scarcely knew of anything outside our old walls. There is something melancholy in it. I don't know why. When we went to see the famous leaning tower at Pisa, it was a bright sunny day, and it and the buildings near it looked so old, and the earth and the sky looked so young, and its shadow on the ground was so soft and retired. I could not at first think how beautiful it was, or how curious it was, but I thought, oh, how many times, when the shadow of the wall was falling on our room, and when that weary tread of feet was going up and down the yard, 
oh how many times this place was just as quiet and lovely as it is to-day it quite overpowered me my heart was so full that tears burst out of my eyes though i did what i could to restrain them and i have the same feeling often often do you know that since the change in our fortunes though i appear to myself to have dreamed more than before i have always dreamed of myself as very young indeed i am not very old you may say no but that is not what i mean i have always dreamed of myself as a child learning to do needlework i have often dreamed of myself as back there seeing faces in the yard little known and which i should have thought i had quite forgotten but as often as not i have been abroad here in switzerland or france or italy somewhere where we have been yet always as that little child i have dreamed of going down to mrs general with the patches on my clothes in which i can first remember myself i have over and over again dreamed of taking my place at dinner at venice when we have had a large company in the morning for my poor mother which i wore when i was eight years old and wore long after it was threadbare and would mend no more it has been a great distress to me to think how irreconcilable the company would consider it with my father's wealth and how i should displease and disgrace him and fanny and edward by so plainly disclosing what they wish to keep secret but i have not grown out of the little child in thinking of it and at the self-same moment i have dreamed that i have sat with the heartache at table calculating the expenses of the dinner and quite distracting myself with thinking how they were ever to be made good i have never dreamed of the change in our fortunes itself i have never dreamed of your coming back with me that memorable morning to break it i have never even dreamed of you dear mr clennam it is possible that i have thought of you and others so much by day that i have no thoughts left to wander round you by night for i must now confess to you that i suffer from homesickness that i long so ardently and earnestly for home as sometimes when no one sees me to pine for it i cannot bear to turn my face further away from it my heart is a little lightened when we turn towards it even for a few miles and with the knowledge that we are soon to turn away again so dearly do i love the scene of my poverty and your kindness oh so dearly oh so dearly heaven knows when your poor child will see england again we are all fond of the life here except me and there are no plans for our return my dear father talks of a visit to london late in this next spring on some affairs connected with the property but i have no hope that he will bring me with him i have tried to get on a little better under mrs general's instruction and i hope i am not quite so dull as i used to be i have begun to speak and understand almost easily the hard languages i told you about i did not remember at the moment when i wrote last that you knew them both but i remembered it afterwards and it helped me on god bless you dear mr clennam do not forget your ever grateful and affectionate little dorrit p s particularly remember that minnie gowan deserves the best remembrance in which you can hold her you cannot think too generously or too highly of her i forgot mr pancks last time please if you should see him give him your little dorrit's kind regard 
he was very good to little D. End of Book Two, Chapter Eleven. Book Two, Chapter Twelve of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Riches. Chapter Twelve, in which a great patriotic conference is holden. The famous name of Myrtle became, every day, more famous in the land. Nobody knew that the Myrtle, of such high renown, had ever done any good to any one, alive or dead, or to any earthly thing. Nobody knew that he had any capacity, or utterance of any sort in him, which had ever thrown, for any creature, the feeblest farthing candle ray of light on any path of duty or diversion, pain or pleasure, toil or rest, fact or fancy, among the multiplicity of paths in the labyrinth trodden by the sons of Adam. Nobody had the smallest reason for supposing the clay of which this object of worship was made to be other than the commonest clay, with as clogged a wick smouldering inside of it as ever kept an image of humanity from tumbling to pieces. All people knew, or thought they knew, that he had made himself immensely rich, and, for that reason alone, prostrated themselves before him, more degradedly and less excusably than the darkest savage creeps out of his hole in the ground to propitiate, in some log or reptile, the deity of his benighted soul. Nay, the high priests of this worship had the man before them as a protest against their meanness. The multitude worshipped on trust, though always distinctly knowing why, but the officiators at the altar at the man habitually in their view. They sat at his feasts, and he sat at theirs. There was a spectre always attendant on him, saying to these high priests, Are such the signs you trust, and love to honour? This head, these eyes, this mode of speech, the tone and manner of this man? You are the levers of the circumlocution office, and the rulers of men. When half a dozen of you fall out by the ears, it seems that Mother Earth can give birth to no other rulers. Does your qualification lie in the superior knowledge of men which accepts, courts, and puffs this man? Or, if you are competent to judge aright the signs I never fail to show you when he appears among you, is your superior honesty your qualification? Two rather ugly questions, these, always going about town with Mr. Myrtle and there was a tacit agreement that they must be stifled. In Mrs. Myrtle's absence abroad, Mr. Myrtle still kept the great house open for the passage through it of a stream of visitors. A few of these took affable possession of the establishment. Three or four ladies of distinction and liveliness used to say to one another, "'Let us dine at our dear Mr. Myrtle's next Thursday. Whom shall we have?' Our dear Myrtle would then receive his instructions, and would sit heavily among the company at table, and wander lumpishly about his drawing-rooms afterwards, only remarkable for appearing to have nothing to do with the entertainment beyond being in its way. The chief butler, the avenging spirit of this great man's life, relaxed nothing of his severity. He looked on at these dinners when the bosom was not there, as he looked on at other dinners when the bosom was there, and his eye was a basilisk to Mr. Myrtle. He was a hard man, and would never bait an ounce of plate or a bottle of wine. He would not allow a dinner to be given, unless it was up to his mark. He set forth the table for his own dignity. 
if the guests chose to partake of what was served, he saw no objection, but it was served for the maintenance of his rank. As he stood by the sideboard, he seemed to announce, I have accepted office to look at this which is now before me, and to look at nothing less than this. If he missed the presiding bosom, it was as a part of his own state of which he was, from unavoidable circumstances, temporarily deprived, just as he might have missed a centrepiece or a choice wine-cooler which had been sent to the bankers. Mr. Myrtle issued invitations for a barnacle dinner. Lord Decimus was to be there, Mr. Tight Barnacle was to be there, the pleasant young Barnacle was to be there, and the chorus of parliamentary Barnacles, who went about the provinces when the house was up, warbling the praises of their chief, were to be represented there. It was understood to be a great occasion. Mr. Myrtle was going to take up the Barnacles. Some delicate little negotiations had occurred between him and the noble Decimus, the young Barnacle of engaging manners acting as negotiator, and Mr. Myrtle had decided to cast the weight of his great probity and great riches into the Barnacle scale. Jobbery was suspected by the malicious, perhaps because it was indisputable that if the adherence of the immortal enemy of mankind could have been secured by a job, the Barnacles would have jobbed him, for the good of the country, for the good of the country. Mrs. Myrtle had written to this magnificent spouse of hers, whom it was heresy to regard as anything less than all the British merchants since the days of Whittington rolled into one, and gilded three feet deep all over, had written to the spouse of hers several letters from Rome, in quick succession, urging upon him with importunity that now or never was the time to provide for Edmund Sparkler. Mrs. Myrtle had shown him that the case of Edmund was urgent, and that infinite advantages might result from his having some good things directly. In the grammar of Mrs. Myrtle's verbs on this momentous subject, there was only one mood, the imperative, and that mood had only one tense, the present. Mrs. Myrtle's verbs were so pressingly presented to Mr. Myrtle to conjugate, that his sluggish blood and his long coat-cuffs became quite agitated. In which state of agitation, Mr. Myrtle, evasively rolling his eyes round the chief butler's shoes, without raising them to the index of that stupendous creature's thoughts, had signified to him his intention of giving a special dinner—not a very large dinner, but a very special dinner. The chief butler had signified in return that he had no objection to look on at the most expensive thing in that way that could be done, and the day of the dinner was now come. Mr. Myrtle stood in one of his drawing-rooms, with his back to the fire, waiting for the arrival of his important guests. He seldom or never took the liberty of standing with his back to the fire, unless he was quite alone. In the presence of the chief butler he could not have done such a deed. He would have clasped himself by the wrists, in that constabulary manner of his, and have paced up and down the hearth-rug, or gone creeping about among the rich objects of furniture, if his oppressive retainer had appeared in the room at that very moment. The sly shadows which seemed to dart out of hiding when the fire rose, and to dart back into when the fire fell, were sufficient witnesses of his making himself so easy. They were even more than sufficient, if his uncomfortable glances at them might be taken to mean anything. Mr. Myrtle's right hand was filled with the evening paper, and the evening paper was full of Mr. Myrtle. His wonderful enterprise, his wonderful wealth, his wonderful bank, were the fattening food of the evening paper that night. The wonderful bank, of which he was the chief projector, establisher, and manager, was the latest of the many Myrtle wonders. 
So modest was Mr. Merdle withal, in the midst of these splendid achievements, that he looked far more like a man in possession of his house under a distraint than a commercial colossus bestriding his own hearth-rug while the little ships were sailing into dinner. Behold the vessels coming into port! The engaging young barnacle was the first arrival. But Barr overtook him on the staircase. Barr, strengthened as usual with his double eyeglass and his little jury droop, was overjoyed to see the engaging young barnacle, and opined that we were going to sit in Banco, as we lawyers called it, to take a special argument. "'Indeed!' said the sprightly young barnacle, whose name was Ferdinand. "'How so?' "'Nay,' smiled Barr, "'if you don't know, how can I know? You are in the innermost sanctuary of the temple.' I am one of the admiring concourse on the plain without." Bar could be light in hand, or heavy in hand, according to the customer he had to deal with. With Ferdinand Barnacle he was gossamer. Bar was likewise always modest and self-depreciatory in his way. Bar was a man of great variety, but one leading thread ran through the woof of all his patterns. Every man with whom he had to do was in his eyes a jury-man and he must get that jury-man over, if he could. "'Our illustrious host and friend,' said Barr, "'our shining mercantile star, going into politics?' "'Going? He has been in Parliament some time, you know,' returned the engaging young barnacle. "'True,' said Barr, with his light comedy laugh for special juryman, which was a very different thing from his low comedy laugh for comic tradesmen on common juries. He has been in Parliament for some time, yet hitherto our star has been a vacillating and wavering star. Hm. An average witness would have been seduced by the hm into an affirmative answer, but Ferdinand Barnacle looked knowingly at Barr as he strolled upstairs and gave him no answer at all. Just so, just so, said Barr, nodding his head, for he was not to be put off in that way. "'And therefore I spoke of our sitting in Banco to take a special argument, meaning this to be a high and solemn occasion, when, as Captain Macheath says, the judges are met, a terrible show. We lawyers are sufficiently liberal, you see, to quote the captain, though the captain is severe upon us. Nevertheless, I think I could put in evidence an admission of the captain's.' said Barr, with a little jocose roll of his head, for, in his legal current of speech, he always assumed the air of rallying himself with the best grace in the world. "'An admission of the captains that law, in the gross, is at least intended to be impartial. For what says the captain, if I quote him correctly, and if not,' with a light comedy touch of his double eyeglass on his companion's shoulder, "'my learned friend will set me right.' since laws were made for every degree to curb vice in others as well as in me i wonder we hunt better company upon tyburn tree these words brought them to the drawing-room where mr merdle stood before the fire so immensely astounded was mr merdle by the entrance of bar with such a reference in his mouth that bar explained himself to have been quoting gay assuredly not one of our westminster hall authorities said he but still no despicable one to a man possessing the largely practical mr merdle's knowledge of the world mr merdle looked as if he thought he would say something but subsequently looked as if he thought he wouldn't the interval afforded time for bishop to be announced 
Bishop came in with meekness, and yet with a strong and rapid step, as if he wanted to get his seven-league dress-shoes on, and go round the world to see that everybody was in a satisfactory state. Bishop had no idea that there was anything significant in the occasion. That was the most remarkable trait in his demeanour. He was crisp, fresh, cheerful, affable, bland, but so surprisingly innocent. Barr sidled up to prefer his politest inquiries in reference to the health of Mrs. Bishop. Mrs. Bishop had been a little unfortunate in the article of taking cold at a confirmation, but otherwise was well. Young Mr. Bishop was also well. He was down with his young wife and little family at his cure of souls. The representative of the Barnacle Chorus dropped in next, and Mr. Myrtle's physician dropped in next. Barr, who had a bit of one eye and a bit of his double eyeglass for every one who came in at the door, no matter with whom he was conversing or what he was talking about, got among them all by some skilful means without being seen to get at them, and touched each individual gentleman of the jury on his own individual favourite spot. With some of the chorus he laughed about the sleepy member who had gone out into the lobby the other night and voted the wrong way. With others he deplored that innovating spirit in the time which could not even be prevented from taking an unnatural interest in the public service and the public money. With the physician he had a word to say about the general health. He had also a little information to ask him for, concerning a professional man of unquestioned erudition and polished manners. But those credentials in their highest development, he believed, were the possession of other professors of the healing art, jury droop whom he had happened to have in the witness-box the day before yesterday, and from whom he had elicited, in cross-examination, that he claimed to be one of the exponents of this new mode of treatment, which appeared to Barr to, eh? Well, Barr thought so. Barr had thought and hoped physician would tell him so. Without presuming to decide where doctors disagreed, it did appear to Barr, viewing it as a question of common sense, and not of so-called legal penetration, that this new system was, might be, in the presence of so great an authority, say, humbug? Ah! Fortified by such encouragement, he could venture to say humbug. And now Barr's mind was relieved. Mr. Tite Barnacle, who, like Dr. Johnson's celebrated acquaintance, had only one idea in his head, and that was a wrong one, had appeared by this time. This eminent gentleman and Mr. Myrtle, seated diverse ways and with ruminating aspects on a yellow ottoman in the light of the fire, holding no verbal communication with each other, bore a strong general resemblance to the two cows in the kipe picture over against them. But now Lord Decimus arrived. The chief butler, who up to this time had limited himself to a branch of his usual function by looking at the company as they entered, and that, with more a defiance than favour, put himself so far out of his way as to come upstairs with him and announce him. Lord Decimus, being an overpowering peer, a bashful young member of the lower house who was the last fish but one caught by the barnacles, and who had been invited on this occasion to commemorate his capture, shut his eyes when his lordship came in. Lord Decimus, nevertheless, was glad to see the member. He was also glad to see Mr. Myrtle. Glad to see Bishop glad to see Barr, glad to see Physician, glad to see Tight Barnacle, glad to see Chorus, glad to see Ferdinand, his private secretary. Lord Decimus, though one of the greatest of the earth, was not remarkable for ingratiatory manners, and Ferdinand had coached him up to the point of noticing all the fellows he might find there, and saying he was glad to see them. 
when he had achieved this rush of vivacity and condescension, his lordship composed himself into the picture after Kipe, and made a third cow in the group. Bar, who felt that he had got all the rest of the jury, and must now lay hold of the foreman, soon came sidling up, double eyeglass in hand. Bar tendered the weather, as a subject neatly aloof from official reserve, for the foreman's consideration. Bar said that he was told, as everybody always is told, though who tells them and why will ever remain a mystery, that there was to be no wall-fruit this year. Lord Decimus had not heard anything amiss of his peaches, but rather believed, if his people were correct, he was to have no apples. No apples? Bar was lost in astonishment and concern. It would have been all one to him, in reality, if there had not been a pippin on the surface of the earth, but his show of interest in this apple question was positively painful. Now, to what, Lord Decimus, for we troublesome lawyers loved to gather information, and could never tell how useful it might prove to us, to what, Lord Decimus, was this to be attributed? Lord Decimus could not undertake to propound any theory about it. This might have stopped another man, but Bar, sticking to him fresh as ever, said, "'As to pears, now?' Long after Bar got made Attorney-General, this was told of him as a master-stroke. Lord Decimus had a reminiscence about a pear-tree formerly growing in a garden near the back of his dame's house at Eton, upon which pear-tree the only joke of his life perennially bloomed. It was a joke of a compact and portable nature, turning on the difference between Eton pears and parliamentary pears. But it was a joke, a refined relish of which would seem to have appeared to Lord Decimus impossible to be had without a thorough and intimate acquaintance with the tree. Therefore the story had first had no idea of such a tree, sir, then gradually found it in winter, carried it through the changing season, saw it bud, saw it blossom, saw it bear fruit, saw the fruit ripen, in short, cultivated the tree in that diligent and minute manner before it got out of the bedroom window to steal the fruit, that many thanks had been offered up by belated listeners for the trees having been planted and grafted prior to Lord Decimus's time. Bar's interest in apples was so overtopped by the rapt suspense in which he pursued the changes of these pears, from the moment when Lord Decimus solemnly opened with, "'Your mentioning pears recalls to my remembrance a pear-tree,' down to the rich conclusion, "'and so we pass through the various changes of life, from Eton pears to parliamentary pears.' that he had to go downstairs with Lord Decimus, and even then to be seated next to him, at table, in order that he might hear the anecdote out. By that time Bar felt that he had secured the foreman, and might go to dinner with a good appetite. It was a dinner to provoke an appetite, though he had not had one. The rarest dishes, sumptuously cooked and sumptuously served, the choicest fruits, the most exquisite wines, marvels of workmanship in gold and silver, china and glass, Innumerable things, delicious to the senses of taste, smell, and sight, were insinuated into its composition. Oh, what a wonderful man, this Myrtle! What a great man! What a master man! How blessedly and enviably endowed! In one word, what a rich man! He took his usual poor eighteen-penneth of food, in his usual indigestive way, and had as little to say for himself as ever a wonderful man had. Fortunately, Lord Decimus was one of those sublimities who have no occasion to be talked to, for they can be at any time sufficiently occupied with the contemplation of their own greatness. This enabled the bashful young member to keep his eyes open long enough at a time to see his dinner. But whenever Lord Decimus spoke, 
he shut them again. The agreeable young Barnacle and Bar were the talkers of the party. Bishop would have been exceedingly agreeable also, but that his innocence stood in his way. He was so soon left behind. When there was any little hint of anything being in the wind, he got lost directly. Worldly affairs were too much for him. He couldn't make them out at all. This was observable when Barr said, incidentally, that he was happy to have heard that we were soon to have the advantage of enlisting on the good side the sound and plain sagacity, not demonstrative or ostentatious, but thoroughly sound and practical, of our friend Mr. Sparkler. Ferdinand Barnacle laughed, and said, oh, yes, he believed so. A vote was a vote, and always acceptable. Barr was sorry to miss our good friend Mr. Sparkler to-day, Mr. Myrtle. He is away with Mrs. Myrtle, returned that gentleman, slowly coming out of a long abstraction, in the course of which he had been fitting a tablespoon up his sleeve. It is not indispensable for him to be on the spot. The magic name of Myrtle, said Barr, with the jury droop, no doubt will suffice for all. Why, yes, I believe so, assented Mr. Myrtle, putting the spoon aside, and clumsily hiding each of his hands in the coat-cuff of the other hand. I believe the people in my interest down there will not make any difficulty. Model people, said Barr. I am glad you approve of them, said Mr. Myrtle. And of the people of those other two places now, pursued Barr, with a bright twinkle in his keen eye, as it slightly turned in the direction of his magnificent neighbour. We lawyers are always curious, always inquisitive, always picking up odds and ends for our patchwork minds, since there is no knowing when and where they may fit into some corner. The people of those other two places now, do they yield so laudably to the vast and cumulative influence of such enterprise and such renown? Do those little rills become absorbed so quietly and easily, and as it were by the influence of natural law so beautifully in the swoop of the majestic stream, as it flows upon its wondrous way, enriching the surrounding lands, that their course is perfectly to be calculated, and distinctly to be predicated? Mr. Myrtle, a little troubled by Barr's eloquence, looked fitfully about the nearest salt-cellar for some moments, and then said hesitatingly, "'They are perfectly aware, sir, of their duty to society. They, they will return anybody I send to them for that purpose.' "'Cheering to know,' said Barr, "'cheering to know.' The three places in question were three little rotten holes in this island, containing three little ignorant, drunken, guzzling, dirty, out-of-the-way constituencies that had reeled into Mr. Myrtle's pocket. Ferdinand Barnacle laughed in his easy way, and airily said they were a nice set of fellows. Bishop, mentally perambulating among paths of peace, was altogether swallowed up in absence of mind. "'Pray,' asked Lord Decimus, casting his eyes around the table, "'what is this story I have heard of a a gentleman, long confined in a debtor's prison, proving to be of a wealthy family, and having come into the inheritance of a large sum of money, I have met with a variety of allusions to it. Do you know anything of it, Ferdinand?' "'I only know this much,' said Ferdinand, "'that he has given the department with which I have the honour to be associated.' This sparkling young barnacle threw off the phrase sportively, as who should say, We know all about these forms of speech, but we must keep it up, we must keep the game alive. No end of trouble, and has put us into innumerable fixes. 
fixes?' repeated Lord Decimus, with a majestic pausing and pondering on the word that made the bashful member shut his eyes quite tight. "'Fixes?' "'A very perplexing business indeed,' observed Mr. Tightbarnacle, with an air of grave resentment. "'What?' said Lord Decimus. "'Was the character of his business? What was the nature of these, uh, fixes, Ferdinand?' "'Oh, it's a good story, is a story,' returned that gentleman. "'As good a thing of its kind as need be. This Mr. Dorrit—his name is Dorrit—had incurred a responsibility to us, ages before the fairy came out of the bank and gave him his fortune, under a bond he had signed for the performance of a contract, which was not at all performed. He was a partner in a house in some large way—spirits, or buttons, or wine, or blacking, or oatmeal, or woollen, or pork, or hooks and eyes, or iron, or treacle, or shoes, or something or other, that was wanted for troops, or seamen, or somebody. And the house burst, and we, being among the creditors, detainees were lodged on the part of the Crown in a scientific manner, and, and all the rest of it. When the fairy had appeared, and he wanted to pay us off, egad, we had got into such an exemplary state of checking and counter-checking, signing and countersigning, that it was six months before we knew how to take the money, or how to give a receipt for it. It was a triumph of public business," said this handsome young barnacle, laughing heartily. "'You never saw such a lot of forms in your life. Why,' the attorney said to me one day, "'if I wanted this office to give me two or three thousand pounds instead of take it—' I couldn't have more trouble about it. You're right, old fellow, I told him, and in future you'll know that we have something to do here. The pleasant young barnacle finished by once more laughing heartily. He was a very easy, pleasant fellow indeed, and his manners were exceedingly winning. Mr. Tite's barnacle view of the business was of a less airy character. He took it ill that Mr. Dorrit had troubled the department by wanting to pay the money, and considered it a grossly informal thing to do after so many years but Mr. Tite Barnacle was a buttoned-up man, and consequently a weighty one. All buttoned-up men are weighty. All buttoned-up men are believed in. Whether or no the reserved and never-exercised power of unbuttoning fascinates mankind, whether or no wisdom is supposed to condense and augment when buttoned-up, and to evaporate when unbuttoned, it is certain that the man to whom importance is accorded is the buttoned-up man. Mr. Tite Barnacle never would have passed for half his current value, unless his coat had been always buttoned up to his white cravat. "'May I ask,' said Lord Decimus, "'if Mr. Derrit—or Dorrit—has any family?' Nobody else replying, the host said, "'He has two daughters, my lord.' "'Oh! You're acquainted with him?' asked Lord Decimus. "'Mrs. Myrtle is—' "'Mr. Sparkler is, too, in fact,' said Mr. Myrtle. "'I rather believe that one of the young ladies has made an impression on Edmund Sparkler. He is susceptible, and, I think, the conquest—here Mr. Myrtle stopped and looked at the tablecloth, as he usually did when he found himself observed or listened to. Barr was uncommonly pleased to find that the Myrtle family and this family had already been brought into contact. He submitted, in a low voice, across the table to Bishop, that it was a kind of analogical illustration of those physical laws in virtue of which like flies to like. He regarded this power of attraction in wealth to draw wealth to it, as something remarkably interesting and curious, something indefinably allied to the lodestone and gravitation. Bishop, who had ambled back to earth again when the present theme was broached, acquiesced. 
is that it was indeed highly important to society that one in the trying situation of unexpectedly finding himself invested with the power for good or for evil in society should become as it were merged in the superior power of a more legitimate and more gigantic growth the influence of which as in the case of our friend at whose board we sat was habitually exercised in harmony with the best interests of society thus instead of two rival and contending flames a larger and a lesser each burning with a lurid and uncertain glare we had a blended and a softened light whose genial ray diffused an equable warmth throughout the land bishop seemed to like his own way of putting the case very much and rather dwelt upon it bar meanwhile not to throw away a juryman making a show of sitting at his feet and feeding on his precepts the dinner and dessert being three hours long the bashful member cooled in the shadow of lord decimus faster than he warmed with food and drink and had but a chilly time of it lord decimus like a tall tower in a flat country seemed to project himself across the tablecloth hide the light from the honourable member cool the honourable member's marrow and give him a woeful idea of distance when he asked this unfortunate traveller to take wine he encompassed his faltering steps with the gloomiest of shades and when he said your health sir all around him was barrenness and desolation at length lord decimus with a coffee-cup in his hand began to hover about among the pictures and to cause an interesting speculation to arise in all minds as to the probabilities of his ceasing to hover and enabling the smaller birds to flutter upstairs which could not be done until he had urged his noble pinions in that direction after some delay and several stretches of his wings which came to nothing he soared to the drawing-rooms and here a difficulty arose which always does arise when two people are specially brought together at a dinner to confer with one another everybody except bishop who had no suspicion of it knew perfectly well that this dinner had been eaten and drunk specifically to the end that lord decimus and mr merdle should have five minutes conversation together the opportunity so elaborately prepared was now arrived and it seemed from that moment that no mere human ingenuity could so much as get the two chieftains into the same room mr merdle and his noble guest persisted in prowling about at opposite ends of the perspective it was in vain for the engaging ferdinand to bring lord decimus to look at the bronze horses near mr merdle then mr merdle evaded and wandered away it was in vain for him to bring mr merdle to lord decimus to tell him the history of the unique dresden vases then lord decimus evaded and wandered away while he was getting his man up to the mark did you ever see such a thing as this said ferdinand to bar when he had been baffled twenty times often returned bar unless i butt one of them into an appointed corner and you butt the other said ferdinand it will not come off after all very good said bar i'll butt myrtle if you like but not my lord ferdinand laughed in the midst of his vexation confound them both said he looking at his watch i want to get away why the deuce can't they come together they both know what they want and mean to do look at them they were still looming at opposite ends of the perspective each with an absurd pretence of not having the other on his mind which could not have been more transparently ridiculous though his real mind had been chalked on his back bishop who had just now made a third with bar and ferdinand but whose innocence had again cut him out of the subject and washed him in sweet oil was seen to approach lord decimus and glide into conversation i must get myrtle's doctor to catch and secure him i suppose 
said Ferdinand, and then I must lay hold of my illustrious kinsman, and decoy him if I can, drag him if I can't, to the conference. Since you do me the honour, said Barr, with his slyest smile, to ask for my poor aid, it shall be yours with the greatest pleasure. I don't think this is to be done by one man, but if you will undertake to pen my lord into that furthest drawing-room where he is now so profoundly engaged, I will undertake to bring our dear Myrtle into the presence without the possibility of getting away. Done, said Ferdinand. Done, said Barr. Barr was a sight wondrous to behold, and full of matter, when, jauntily waving his double eyeglass by its ribbon, and jauntily drooping to an universe of jurymen, he, in the most accidental manner ever seen, found himself at Mr. Myrtle's shoulder, and embraced that opportunity of mentioning a little point to him, on which he particularly wished to be guided by the light of his practical knowledge. Here he took Mr. Myrtle's arm, and walked him gently away. A banker, whom we would call A. B., advanced a considerable sum of money, which we would call fifteen thousand pounds, to a client or customer of his, whom we would call P. Q. Here, as they were getting towards Lord Decimus, he held Mr. Myrtle tight. As a security for the repayment of this advance to P. Q., whom we would call a widow lady, there were placed in A. B.'s hands the title deeds of a freehold estate, which we would call Blinketer Doddles. Now, the point was this. A limited right of felling and lopping in the woods of Blinketer Doddles lay in the son of P. Q., then past his majority, and whom we would call X. Y. But really, this was too bad. In the presence of Lord Decimus, to detain the host with chopping our dry chaff of law, was really too bad. Another time, Barr was truly repentant, and would not say another syllable. Would Bishop favour him with half a dozen words? He had now set Mr. Myrtle down on a couch side by side with Lord Decimus, and to it they must go, now or never. And now the rest of the company, highly excited and interested, always excepting Bishop, who had not the slightest idea that anything was going on, formed in one group round the fire in the next drawing-room, and pretended to be chatting easily on the infinite variety of small topics, while everybody's thoughts and eyes were secretly straying towards the secluded pair. The chorus were excessively nervous, perhaps as labouring under the dreadful apprehension that some good thing was going to be diverted from them. Bishop alone talked steadily and evenly. He conversed with the great physician on that relaxation of the throat which young curates were too frequently afflicted, and on the means of lessening the great prevalence of that disorder in the church. Physician, as a general rule, was of opinion that the best way to avoid it was to know how to read before you made a profession of reading. Bishop said dubiously, did he really think so? And physician said, decidedly, yes, he did. Ferdinand, meanwhile, was the only one of the party who skirmished on the outside of the circle. He kept about midway between it and the two, as if some sort of surgical operation were being performed by Lord Decimus on Mr. Myrtle, or by Mr. Myrtle on Lord Decimus, and his services might at any moment be required as dresser. In fact, within a quarter of an hour, Lord Decimus called to him, Ferdinand, and he went and took his place in the conference for some five minutes more. Then a half-suppressed gasp broke out among the chorus, for Lord Decimus rose to take his leave. Again coached up by Ferdinand to the point of making himself popular, he shook hands in the most brilliant manner with the whole company, and even said to Barr, 
"'I hope you are not bored by my pears?' To which Barr retorted, "'Eaten, my lord, or parliamentary?' Neatly showing that he had mastered the joke, and delicately insinuating that he could never forget it while his life remained. All the grave importance that was buttoned up in Mr. Tight Barnacle took itself away next, and Ferdinand took himself away next to the opera. Some of the rest lingered a little, marrying golden liquor-glasses to buell tables with sticky rings, on the desperate chance of Mr. Myrtle saying something, but Myrtle, as usual, oozed sluggishly and muddily about his drawing-room, saying never a word. In a day or two it was announced to all the town that Edmund Sparkler, Esquire, son-in-law of the eminent Mr. Myrtle of world-wide renown, was made one of the lords of the Circumlocution Office, and proclamation was issued to all true believers that this admirable appointment was to be hailed as a graceful and gracious mark of homage rendered by the graceful and gracious Decimus to that commercial interest which must ever, in a great commercial country, and all the rest of it, with blast of trumpet. So bolstered by this mark of government homage, the wonderful bank and all the other wonderful undertakings went on and went up, and gapers came to Harley Street, Cavendish Square, only to look at the house where the golden wonder lived. And when they saw the chief butler looking out at the hall door in his moments of condescension, the gapers said how rich he looked, and wondered how much money he had in the wonderful bank. But if they had known that respectable nemesis better, they would not have wondered about it, and might have stated the amount with the utmost precision. End of Book Two, Chapter Twelve When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.